0: Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Six of you still uh, getting over Christmas. Welcome. Good to see you. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Hope you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25 as we continue our line-by-line exposition of the book of Romans. Before we get into this text, I want to start with a little illustration. So I've got two kids. Uh, One is a boy named Judah, who is three. The other is a little girl named Isla, who is one. And one of the things that we are trying to do is we are trying to teach them to be happy when something good happens to the other sibling, okay? Because mankind is born sinful, because we're born wicked, we naturally have a tendency just to be happy when something good happens to us, but not other people, right? So if our coworker gets the promotion we wanted, we're not happy for them, we wanted that promotion. Or if our friend gets a new car or a new house or something like that, we're not happy for them typically, we want the new car or we want the new house. And so we are trying to fight that in our children. So one of the things that we will do is we will call them both into the room, Judah and Isla. they'll both come into the room, and we will give one of them a piece of candy. But not both of them! Now, sometimes we do, we're not tyrants, but we will give one of them a piece of candy, and we will tell the other one that they have to be happy that something good happened to their sibling. And they do not like it. Now, we typically will end up giving them both candy later on, and we won't just give one kid, you know, the same kid candy every time. But what we're doing is we're trying to teach the kids to be happy, not just when something good happens to me, but when something good happens to somebody else, okay? So this, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we were up on the bed. So it was actually me and my wife and Isla, and she was playing on the bed. And my son came in the room, and he loves playing on the bed. He said, Daddy, can I jump on the bed? And I said, I'll let you jump on the bed in a little bit, but right now, I want you to be happy that Isla is getting to do something fun, that she's getting to jump on the bed. And so I said, I want you to tell Isla that you're happy that she's getting to jump on the bed. And he goes, and his eyes well up with tears. And he goes, Isla. And I said, Judah, you need to tell your sister that you're happy that she's getting to jump on the bed. And he goes, Isla, I'm. And he stops and he turns and he looks at me and he goes, I can't say the words like that. Like. Uh, hold on, you're going to be in trouble if you do not tell Isla that you are happy that she's getting to jump on the bed. And finally, he was able to muster up the strength and say, I'm happy that you get to jump on the bed, right? Now, we let him jump on the bed like two minutes later, okay? We're not mean to our kids, but we want them to understand that it is good when something good happens to your sibling. Well, what we're going to see today in Romans 11 is not between brother and sister, but rather between Jew and Gentile. All of Romans 9 through 11 has been written to address this question. If God has made all these promises to the Jews in the Old Testament, yet most Jews don't trust Jesus and therefore are not saved, has God been unfaithful to his promise? And so, Romans 11, especially in this passage, is going to answer this question, and maybe you've wondered this question. What does God think of the Jewish people? How many people does God have? The church? Is the church the people of God? Is Israel the people of God? Does God have two peoples or something like this? What should we think about when we think about the nation of Israel and Judaism and these kind of things? This text this morning is going to answer that question for us. So let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will get into verse 25. Almighty God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. I pray right now that as we uh, study your word that you would open our hearts. We confess that your word is true and your word is clear, but we are broken. And uh, sin fogs up our glasses. So would you use the Spirit to unfog our glasses and help us see these things today? We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with verse 25. He's going to start with a rebuke. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He starts the sentence, lest you be wise in your own sight. Let me address something bigger theologically and then we will talk about what this means in context. The Bible over and over and over again will shoot down this idea that people should be great in their own sight. It shoots down the idea of human pride, it shoots down the idea of human presumption, and you see that all over the Bible. Let me give you a thousand verses, you ready? Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There are some things that you just know are true. Nobody could convince you otherwise. You are sure in your heart of hearts that what you believe on that is true, and the Bible is going to say that it leads to death. Proverbs 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, seven: be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 28:26. whoever trusts his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Culture would say, and your heart would say, to listen to your heart. There's actually one translation of this text that says, whoever trusts in his heart is stupid. That's a great translation. Do not listen to your heart when it's calling to you. Do not listen to your heart, okay? Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, that means proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. 1 Corinthians 8.2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Proverbs 16.25, the Bible will say it again there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The Bible will say over and over and over again, the one person you're not allowed to trust is you. You get to trust the Bible. You get to trust elders at a church. You get to trust other Christians. The one person you're not allowed to trust is you and your heart. Nobody has lied to you more than you. Nobody has deceived you more than you. Nobody has hurt you more than you. That's the one place you're not allowed to go to truth. We live in a culture that despises this idea, where everyone is wise in their own sight. Read the news, go on social media. It's almost like a virtue for people to be wise in their own sight. If you do not have formal training in medicine, you are not an expert on medicine. If you do not have formal training in law, you're not an expert in law. If you do not have formal training in engineering, you're not an expert in engineering. If you do not have formal training in science, you are not an expert in science, okay? We are not experts in everything. And what the Bible will say over and over again is, be, be cautious Be nervous, be aware, lest you be wise in your own sight. Because when you start presuming that, and you're not open to rebuke, and you're not open to correction, you end up looking like a fool. I'll give you one quick example, and then show you how this plays into the text today. So I was reading Snow White to my little girl, okay? She has a little Snow White picture book, and it doesn't have all the words. It's mainly just pictures. And I thought, yeah, I'm gonna read this story to her because I know Snow White. Who doesn't know the story of Snow White? And so I sit down with her, and I put her on my lap, and I open up the Snow White book, And I instantly realized that I don't know the story as well as I think that I do, okay? So we start going going through the pages and we get to the place where there are seven dwarves, okay? Now Tim, our worship minister, first of all makes fun of me because he says that I say "dwarfs," D-O-R-F-S, seven dwarfs. He says that it's pronounced dwarves, to which I respond, you would know because you are one, right? But as we get into this, as we get into this page, there are seven dwarves and I realize I don't know their names. So she's looking at me. And I stop reading, and I look at her, and I just start guessing. I'm like, this one here with the glasses, this one is Doc? That sounds right. This one over here is uh, Sleazy and Slappy. And uh, this one with the red face, that's, uh, that's Shy Guy. And the one sneezing is probably Diseasy. That's his name and uh, Keith, because I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember it. So I just said one of them was named Keith. Now, I realized, going into that, I thought I knew the story of the seven dwarfs and uh, Snow White, but I did not. I relied on human pride and presumption, okay? So uh, when my daughter believes that there are dwarves named Sleazy and Diseasy, that's, uh, that's my fault. Now, where does this play into Romans 11 specifically? So that's a general theological rebuke. Here's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's having to rebuke Gentile pride, Because here's what's going on. At first, you have the Jews. The Jews think that they're great. They think that they're already in covenant with God. They don't need Jesus. And the Apostle Paul has to rebuke them and say, no, you need Christ, even if you have the law, because you can't keep the law. But then what happens is the pendulum swings to the other side, and you now have Gentile pride. You have Gentiles thinking, I'm so great, I obviously figured it out. I trusted Christ. Why can't these silly Jews see that they're wrong? And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is rebuking Gentile pride and presumption starting off here in verse 25. Let me just give you a little social commentary. Imagine that there's a pendulum hanging straight down. Anytime there's an injustice, the pendulum swings to one side. People typically will not allow the pendulum just to go back to the middle. They don't want righteousness. They want revenge. And so what happens is the pendulum then swings too far to the other side. And then to correct that, you have to overcorrect again, and it swings too far to this side. So why is everything always crazy, and everyone's always fighting each other? It's because no one will let the pendulum hang in the middle. Whatever is truth, whatever is righteousness, they always want the overcorrection. So the Apostle Paul, in a sense, is having to uh, kind of rebuke a first century reverse discrimination kind of thing. The Jews thought they were proud, and then as an overreaction, you have the Gentiles here becoming proud. Now he continues in verse 25. Look at this line. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, this mystery. What is a mystery in the New Testament? This word is used a lot. Musterion is what it is in Greek. What is a mystery? It's not meant to be something that we don't know the answer to. It's not like a whodunit. It's not like a riddle. You know what a riddle is? Like uh, what gets uh, wetter as it dries? A towel, right? It's not like that. It's not a riddle. It's not meant to be that. A mystery in the New Testament means this. It's something that God has already ordained. It's already true in the heavens. And God is now revealing it to us in Christ. That's what mystery means. Most often, this is used to talk about Gentiles getting into a Jewish faith. That's the mystery of God, that God has ordained to save the entire world through the Jewish Messiah, not just Jews. And that is the mystery of God. Here, the Apostle Paul uses it, though, of Gentiles. Now, look at the second half of the verse. It says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? That what God is doing is He is in a process of saving Gentiles. Until that full number of elect Gentiles, all the Gentiles that God is going to save is completed, there is a hardening over the hearts of many Jewish people. I have witnessed to Jews. I have been to Israel on a mission trip and witnessed to Jews. And there is a hardness and a recalcitrance and a resistance to the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says that that will remain until... God is done in His process of saving Gentiles. So, with all that information, what does verse 25 mean? Let me give you a summary. I don't want you Gentile Christians being ignorant of what God is doing and becoming proud against the Jews. He has hardened the hearts of many Jews until all the Gentiles whom He is going to save have been saved. That's what verse 25 means. Okay? Now let's move into verses 26 and 27. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's look at the first phrase there. He says, in this way. If you've got your Bible, take your pen and by the word way, write the word manner. Okay, M-A-N-N-E-R, manner. In this manner, Israel will be saved. What is that manner? By Jews becoming jealous by seeing Gentiles get into the faith. What he's saying is this. If you're in the first century and you're Jewish and you see all these promises of Israel being fulfilled in Gentiles, Gentile, by the way, is just a non-Jew. There's a lot of Gentiles. Most people are Gentiles. So as you see all these promises being fulfilled in these non-Jews, they have the spirit, they have life, they have fellowship, they have the church, their sins have been forgiven. The hope is that they eventually are provoked to a righteous jealousy to want to trust in Christ as well, okay? Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, says this about verse 26, God imposes a hardening on most of Israel while Gentiles come into the Messianic salvation with the Gentile salvation leading in turn to Israel's jealousy and her own salvation, okay? Now, let me show you one of the most debated phrases in the book of Romans. You ready? Look at the next little section here in verse 26. It says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. You see that? All Israel will be saved. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean when the Bible says, all Israel will be saved, okay? There's at least five different interpretations of what that means that I'm going to give you in just a second. Let me explain the big issue, though, here. People have a tendency not to understand how words work, okay? Words don't have just one meaning, okay? Let's take the word run. I can go for a run. My nose can run. I can run for office. Run can mean a lot of things. You can call somebody and prank call them on the phone and say, is your refrigerator running? well, you better go catch it, right? You can run someone through with a sword. You can run a bath. You can run a lot of stuff, okay? Words don't just have one meaning, and they don't get their meaning from dictionaries. Dictionaries just give you a range of possible meanings. Words get their meaning by context. It's the context around a word that shapes its meaning. So the big issue here will be, what does the word Israel mean here? I'll give you a little example. Another example with my son. I've I've been at home over the holidays with my kids, so all my illustrations today are with kids. My son and I are having this conversation about what is real and what is not real, about the word real, okay? So he saw a monster on TV, and he was scared, and I said, hey, buddy, don't worry. Monsters aren't real. And he was like, good, monsters aren't real. And I'm thinking, he's getting it. He understands existence now. He understands the concept of being, even though he's three. We've had this conversation. And then he saw something else scary. He saw a dinosaur. And he said, Daddy, dinosaurs aren't real. And I said, no, no, no. Dinosaurs are real. They just all died. And then he's like, what's died? And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have even opened that can of worms. Uh, Died is like where you go to sleep and you don't wake up again. Well, I don't want to take a nap because I don't want to not wake up. No, no, you're okay. The dinosaurs are dead. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your nap, okay? And then he saw a lion. And he said, lions aren't real. And I said, buddy, you're looking at the lion. We were at the zoo. Lions aren't real. Yes, yes, they are. There's one right there. But it's not going to hurt you, okay? And then at Halloween time, he saw a skeleton, and he said, skeletons aren't real. And at this point, I just wasn't willing to have the fight. So I said, you know what, buddy? Skeletons aren't real. (laughs) What else am I going to do? I'm not going to say not only are they real, there's one living inside you right now. (laughs) I'm not going to do that to a three-year-old. So whereas I'm using the word real to mean existence, he's using the word real to mean something like, should I be afraid of it? Is it scary? Okay? The reason there's so much debate on this phrase is because the word Israel can be used in a lot of different ways. Okay? A lot of different ways. So I'll even give you one verse where the word Israel is used two different ways in the same verse. Look at Romans 9.6. Not all who are from Israel are Israel. Notice the first use is talking about Israel as a nation, the Jewish people. The other is talking about the elect, spiritual Israel, those who have the faith of Abraham. So you see this all the time. So with that in mind... Here's the question we're going to try to answer. So I'm going to spend a little time on this because this is very controversial. What does Paul mean here when he says, all Israel will be saved? Let me give you five different interpretations, and I'm going to tell you the one I think that's correct. Some people think that that means that every single Jew who ever lived will be saved. People take all Israel in that sense to mean all Israelites, all Jews. The big problem with that interpretation is that that's never been true across the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, that wasn't true. In the New Testament, that's not true. In the Old Testament, you had people who were Jewish and were lost, people like Esau that God hated. In the New Testament, you have Jews like Judas, who is called an Acts a son of perdition. It's never been the case in Old Testament theology or New Testament theology that every Jew will be saved, period. Okay? God has preserved a remnant that doesn't bow the knee to Baal or to Baal, but it's not every single Jew. The second interpretation is similar to that, and it says that what it means for all Israel to be saved is that it refers that there is a way of salvation outside of Christ for those who are Jewish, okay? So what this view would hold is not that there's one way to to salvation through Christ, they would hold that there's two ways. Gentiles get in through Jesus, and Jews get in just by being Jews. They're already in covenant with God. When did they lose that, is what they would say. Again, the problem with that idea is it's extremely unbiblical. The entire book of Romans has been written to say you have to have faith in Jesus to be saved, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Okay? What Paul will say is you Gentiles don't have the Mosaic law, but you do by nature what's evil, so you need forgiveness and you need a savior. You Jews have the Mosaic Law, but you can't keep it. And so you need forgiveness and you need a Savior as well. As Acts will say, there's only one name that people can call upon to be saved, and that's Christ. So views one and two are not correct, okay? Now, let me give you the last three. The third view of what does it mean for all Israel to be saved means that it refers to Jews in the future getting saved during a period of a seven-year tribulation after a rapture. Okay, let me back up because this is a big one. There is a view, a theological viewpoint, called dispensationalism. It was started in the mid-1800s, and uh, it purports an end times view that is similar to what you might have heard in the Left Behind series, Jenkins and LaHaye, or Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. There's this idea that one day Jesus will come and rapture up believers, okay? It'll be quiet, it'll be invisible, an invisible coming we will be raptured. Then there will be seven years of tribulation, and then Christ will really come back in like a third coming and really have the second coming then. Okay? That's the view in dispensationalism. Now, so what people believe if they're dispensational is they believe that this text when it says that all Israel will be saved, that that is a reference to what's going to happen after Christians have been pre-tribulationally raptured. And then there's seven years of tribulation when all the Jews see that they're wrong because all their Christian buddies are gone. And that's when they end up believing in Jesus. Okay? Now, the big problems I have with that are several. Here's the first one. Nowhere in the entire Bible does it teach a pre-tribulational rapture. Every passage that people try to use about that is not about that, it's about the second coming. In 1 Thessalonians, when it talks about us being caught up or snatched up in the air, that's not a reference to a pre-tribulational rapture. It's very obvious. It says that there's a trumpet and a shout and a voice of an archangel, okay? That is talking about the second coming, not a pre-tribulational rapture. In the same way in the uh, ancient world where you would go outside of a city, greet a king, and then invite them back into the city, the idea is that we go and we escort Christ down into his kingdom. That's the idea from that passage. Well, Zach, what about where it says that there'll be two people in a field and one will be taken and the other left, or two people in a bed and one will be taken and the other left? In the context there, Jesus is talking about people being washed away in judgment like the floods of Noah. Noah. So in that context, you don't want to be the one taken. You want to stay. You want to be in the field or in the bed. You don't want to be washed away in judgment. That text means the exact opposite of how a lot of people take it. Okay? The other problem I have with that view is that the New Testament authors apply promises made to Israel originally to the church. Okay? They take promises originally made to Israel, and they make them about Gentiles in the church. The author of Hebrews takes the land promise made to Israel and makes it about Christians inheriting the whole world. Jesus takes the promises about a temple and he makes it about himself. He's the true temple. Okay? So, Zach, you gotta read the Old Testament literally. Yes, but you also have to read the New Testament literally. And when the New Testament authors use a passage and make it about something else, and you disagree with them, they win. Okay? They win. And then number three, I think this is really an important one. The promise was not made to Jews, plural. Paul will say this in Galatians. The promise was never made to a plurality. It was not made to Jews, plural. It was not to Abraham's offsprings, plural, that it was made to one offspring who is Christ. That the promises would not be fulfilled in a plurality of people, that they would be fulfilled in a singular person who typifies the nation of Israel. That's why he has 12 uh, disciples, because they had 12 tribes. That's why he's the temple. That's why he crosses through the Jordan. That's why he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, because Israel was in the wilderness 40 years, etc., etc. So, I don't think that view is correct. I don't think it's saying that uh, in this tribulation period, a bunch of Jews will see that they're wrong and get saved because all the Christians are gone. The fourth view. I know this is a lot. The fourth view. This is the traditional reform view, which I like it. I want it to be true. It's so neat and clean and tidy, but I don't think it's right. Here's the fourth view. What does it mean for all Israel to be saved? That it refers to spiritual Israel, the church. Okay? What does it mean when this text says that all Israel will be saved? Easy. Who is Israel? It's those with the faith of Abraham, i.e. the church, and therefore God will save Christians. It's nice, it's neat, and it's tidy. Now, to their credit, they understand that the New Testament applies promises originally made to Israel about the church. Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, okay? Okay. Notice that if you are not physically Jewish, but if you have the faith of Abraham, you're spiritually Jewish. That's the idea. Galatians 3.7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. How can you be a son of Abraham if you're a Gentile, if you're German or you're Dutch or you're from Africa or Asia or whatever it might be? It's because it's faith that links you to Abraham. In the Galatians 6.16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In context, the Apostle Paul is talking about the church, and here he calls them the, quote, Israel of God. But here's the problem with this view. Here's the problem with taking Israel here to mean the church, okay? I'll give you a bunch of problems. The word Israel has been used ten times thus far in Romans 9-11 through and has meant ethnic Israel in every single occurrence. So you're kind of uh, begging the question to make it not mean that here. If you look at the immediate context, back in verse 25 that we just covered, the word Israel means ethnic Jews. It's hard to then turn that around in verse 26 and give it a metaphorical meaning. Verse 28 makes the text ethnic. What we'll see in just a second in verse 28 is Paul defines Israel as those physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers. And lastly, and most damningly against this position, is this. If the Apostle Paul was saying all Israel being saved simply means the church will be saved, he wouldn't have had to write any of Romans 9 through 11. Okay, his whole purpose in writing Romans 9 through 11 is to explain how ethnic Jews are not being saved, despite the fact that God promised to save Israel. This problem's not solved by redefining the term. Let me, let me say it this way: Let's say a Jewish person comes up to you and says, uh, "Why are so many Jews? Why do so many Jews not believe that Jesus is the Messiah?" And I say. Well, they do. They're spiritual Jews and they're Christians and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Does that answer his question? Does that solve his problem? It does not. He's asking, when God made a promise to an ethnic people, how come God has not fulfilled it with an ethnic people? So the Apostle Paul here, I think, cannot be using Israel in a metaphorical way just to talk about the church. So with all that in mind, so there's a bunch of wrong views. Let's just take 20 minutes to talk about wrong views. Let me give you the one that I think is correct, okay? I think it's the fifth view. Here's here's the view here. That when it says, all Israel be saved, it refers to Israel generically. It refers to the nation of Israel. That's how the word Israel is used, by the way, in verse 25. So, that was a lot of information. So, let's do this, everybody take a big breath. (sighs) Let it out. Now, let me just give you an illustration. If you missed all of that, just follow this illustration, okay. Imagine for a second that I decide to start a fast food restaurant, okay? Zack Burger, right? Zack Burger. It's gonna be delicious. It's going to be the best fast-food restaurant, way better than McDonald's or Burger King, even better than Chick-fil-A, you evangelicals, right? It's going to be delicious, Zack Burger. Our burgers are not going to come with onions on them because onions taste like armpits. You will have to order those extra, okay? They're not going to be on there by default. Our french fries will be cut super thin because we all know that thin fries are the best. They won't be too stiff or too floppy. They will be that perfect medium amount, okay? We'll come up with a great mascot, Some fast food restaurants have terrible mascots. You guys remember when uh, Taco Bell had that Chihuahua as their mascot? What makes you lose your appetite faster than looking at a Chihuahua? It's like this gross mouse dog, okay? Or Chuck E. Cheese, whose mascot is a rat. Welcome to Chuck E. Cheese. Our mascot is a rat. Everything is visibly greasy. Eat a piece of pizza near a sneezing child. That's their motto, okay? It's gross. We'll come up with a great mascot, okay? It's going to be the best fast food. So let's say I I get there and I I bring out 10 employees. Let's say I have 10 employees and I say this to them. I say, no matter what happens, I, as the owner of Zack Burger, promise to be faithful to you. I promise to pay you your wages. I promise to pump money into this thing. I promise to work my fingers to the bone. Whatever's going to happen, I promise you that Zack Burger will continue to flourish. Now look at me. Does that mean that I can never fire someone? It does not. I can fire someone and still be faithful to that promise. Does that mean I can't take somebody else from another fast food restaurant and graft them in to Zack Burger? I can't. When somebody turns away from their sin and working at McDonald's like a Gentile, and they repent and they come to Zack Burger, I can add them to my employees. You see, what I've done here is I've made a promise generically. I've made a promise to the staff. I've made a promise to the entity. The entity is made up of the staff but I have not made that same promise to every single person working there. I've said I will be faithful to Zach Berger and the employees here, not no matter what you do, you won't be fired. And no matter what happens, I won't graft people in. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. God has made a promise to Israel. It doesn't mean every single Israelite will be saved, but it does mean that God has promised to be faithful to this Israel generally. okay? To this Israel, in a sense, generically. That's what I think is going on. Now... Look at the second half of verse 26, going on to verse 27. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. These are prophetic hopes that are kind of mashed together from two passages, Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. Let me read you part of Isaiah 27. This is verse 6 and then verses 12 through 13. Listen to this idea of God saving and calling back Israel. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and uh, you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem, okay? Now look again at verses 26 and 27. I want you to see four things about what the Apostle Paul is doing by quoting the Old Testament here. First of all, I want you to realize that he is saying that Jesus comes from Zion. In the Old Testament, this passage, as it's originally quoted, it's Yahweh that comes from Zion. The Apostle Paul is fine equating that with Jesus because Jesus is the one God. Jesus is Yahweh, distinct from the Father, yet truly and fully God. And so you see Jesus coming from Zion. What is Zion? Zion is this hill or this mountain that's in jerusalem okay i actually got to take a trip to uh, jerusalem and i wanted to see mount zion i had heard that it was this great mountain you read about that in the old testament mount zion so i said take me to mount zion and it's just like this tiny little lump of the city okay you kind of feel like that scene you guys know from dumb and dumber where they're driving through the middle of nowhere and it's completely flat and he goes man i really thought the rocky mountains would be a lot rockier than this that's kind of how you feel with mount zion The reason Mount Zion is spoken of in these grandiose terms is not because of its physical size, but because of its spiritual size. It's symbolic for the presence of God, symbolic for the temple, symbolic for the Ark of the Covenant. It's symbolic for all the promises that God has made to Israel. So Paul says that Jesus is coming from Zion, a Savior. Notice the second thing, that this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul is not making up new doctrine. He's not making up this stuff with Israel. He's saying this has always been God's plan. Number three, notice that it entails the forgiveness of sins. That's the big thing with Jews. Why do so many Jews not believe in Jesus? They think that they're saved just by being Jews. The problem is that God doesn't demand that you be generally faithful to the covenant. He demands that you be perfect, and nobody can, which is why they need Christ. And then number four, there is a veiled reference here also to the second coming. This Jesus who came and brought salvation will one day again, if you will, come from Zion and complete the saving process. So... With all that in mind and all the controversy, what do verses 26 and 27 mean? Let me give you the summary. In being jealous, by seeing all these elect Gentiles getting saved, a lot of Jews will eventually believe in Jesus and be saved. As the Old Testament promised to corporate Israel, a Savior will get rid of evil in Israel and take away your sins. All Paul is saying is this. God right now is in a big process of saving Jews. I'm sorry, saving Gentiles. One day, he will remove this hardening... And Jewish people will get saved only by trusting Christ. They're not saved apart from Christ. But somehow their hearts will eventually be softened and they will trust in Christ. Verses 28 through 29. As regards the gospel, they, that's the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. There's the ethnic reference. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Look at verse 28. It says this. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Let me ask you this question. Are the Jewish people who don't believe in God, or I'm sorry, don't believe in Jesus, are those people friends of God or enemies of God? Are they in a relationship with God or are they not in a relationship with God? Here's what the text says. Both, it just depends on what you mean. Again, it's how language works. Words have several different meanings. It depends on what you mean. On the one hand, sometimes the Jews are condemned with pretty strong terms. The prophets in the Old Testament call them hard-hearted and stiff-necked. Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers and sons of the devil. Paul calls them enemies of God. John in Revelation calls them a synagogue of Satan. But on the other hand, the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 9, 1 through 5 this, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh. There he's saying, if I could go to hell and allow Jews to be saved and make that trade, I would. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay? So what Paul is doing here in this text is saying, what relationship did the Jews have to God? And he says, on the one hand, because they don't know Christ, they are cut off, and they do not have a relationship with God. But there is a sense in which God has a special place in his heart, if you want to say it that way, for Israel, okay, for Israel. Now, let me address something. When the Bible speaks negatively of the quote-unquote Jews, it's not a statement of anti-Semitism, okay? We as Christians should not be anti-Semitic. We as Christians should love Jewish people, hang out with Jewish people, be friends with Jewish people, share the gospel with Jewish people when the Bible critiques the Jews, it's not a racial critique, okay? It's not racism. It's not like Hitler. Jesus is Jewish. Paul is Jewish. All the early church is Jewish. These are Jewish scriptures, okay? It is a theological critique of those who have rejected Jesus. The problem the Bible has is not ethnicity. The problem the Bible has is lack of belief, and it will condemn both Jews and Gentiles who don't believe in Jesus. With the coming of Christ... The primary thing that divides humanity is no longer Jew and Gentile, but believer and non-believer, Christian and non-Christian, okay? So if you ask, uh, are the Jews uh, an enemy of God or a friend of God, it just depends. They're enemies of God in the sense that their hardening allows for the gospel to go to Gentiles. That's what it means, for your sake. But they're loved because God has made his promises to the patriarchs. Look at verse second half of verse 28. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, That God has made a promise and God has made a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, before Abraham was a Jew, he was a Gentile. Before he worshipped God, he worshipped the moon. He was a pagan living in a town called Ur. And so this is not a statement of Jewish pride. It's not a statement to say that God owes salvation. God has selected even the patriarchs just by grace. God takes a moon-worshipping pagan from Ur and says you're going to follow me, I'm going to be your God, and your descendants are going to come, and one of them is going to save the world. That's the promise, okay? That's the promise. But it has always been by grace. God is not bound to save anyone. But once God binds himself, he must be faithful to his promises, for it is impossible for God to lie, as the Scriptures would say. Now look at verse 29. Look at this one. This one's interesting. (laughs) For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What does that mean? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Does that mean that God never takes away any of his gifts? It doesn't. God might take your child. God might take away your job. You might lose your job. You might lose a friend. You might lose money. You might lose a house. You might lose a spouse. Okay? Sorry, that sounded a little Dr. Seuss at the end. You might lose a mouse. Uh... You might lose all these things. When it says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, it does not mean that God will not take away things He has given you. If He gives you ten talents and you are not faithful, He will take them away, the Bible says, and give them to another. What it means is that God will not take away the things He's promised to not take away. In context here, it's talking about salvation. Notice that it says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The Apostle Paul has used the word calling to refer to the saving call, when God saves people through the gospel. This text is saying God doesn't take away the gifts he promises not to take away, not that he won't take away anything. Let me give you an example. Let's say my wife and I adopt a child, okay? So we go and we adopt a child, and we give this child a bunch of toys. And that child starts acting up, so we have to discipline that child, and we take away the toys. Are we being unfaithful? No. I'm not putting the kid back up for adoption just because I take away these things. It's the same way with God. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, God will discipline you, but he will not take away his salvation. He will not break covenant with you, okay? So by the gifts and the calling of God here, the context, the immediate context here is salvation, okay? It's salvation. Verses 30 through 31, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Verses 30 through 31 are very important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, though, just because we've already addressed this topic and two other sermons that you can listen to online. Let me just give you the summary quickly for time's sake, and then we'll get into verse 32. Here's the idea. God in the Old Testament is saving Jews. He's saving Jews. He's elected Israel. He's saving Jews. When Christ comes... You see the Gentiles get in in mass. You see Gentiles get in by faith and not by having to become Jews first. Okay, so God softens the heart of the, softens the heart of the Gentiles. They end up getting saved. Jews then have rejected Christ, and there's this promise that one day though God will soften their hearts and will save them in Christ. Okay, so what God is doing is why one people are softened, the others hardened. When one is then, uh, uh, never mind. You understand what I'm saying. I'm just going to scrap what I was trying to say there. It got too confusing. My hands were going around. It looks different from you if you're on the right or on the left. Basically, what it's saying is this. God let Gentiles in by grace to one day show that he lets Jews in by grace as well. Nobody presupposes upon God's grace. That's the idea. Okay? Now, look at verse 32. I want to spend some time here. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Look at the first half of the verse. It says, for God has consigned all to disobedience. That word translated in your English Bible is consigned is a bit stronger in Greek. It's the uh, Greek word soon, ekklesen, and it means to imprison or to shut up. The idea is that God has imprisoned and shut up all of humanity under sin because of our sin, that he has shut us up under this, that we might need grace. God does not do evil. God himself is not evil. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. But God does ordain evil, and He is sovereign over evil, though He does not do it directly. God can ordain that all people, through their decisions, sin and end up under His wrath for the good purpose of His glory and His name and His renown. So that as He saves people, they glorify Him because of His grace, and as He rightfully damns people, they glorify Him through His justice. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. Yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. Here's what he's saying. God is equally sovereign over good and evil, but he doesn't stand behind them the same way. Goodness flows directly from God's nature. God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. When we do good things, it's only because it's the Spirit doing it within us. We only do it secondarily. But though God is sovereign over evil, it does not flow from His nature. It always flows primarily from secondary agents, whether it's the devil, whether it's us, demons, whatever it might be. So you need to realize, though, this text has said, though, that God has, in God's sovereign plan, ordained that everyone would be born into sin, whether Jew or Gentile, would be shut up under evil. Why? Why? Now we see the reason. Look at the second half of the verse. That he may have mercy on all. That he may have mercy on all. Let me say something about the word all, and then I want to unpack this. The word all here does not mean every single person. We've seen this a lot in the Bible. A lot of times when the word says the Bible says every or all, it doesn't mean every single. If I say I'm having a party and everyone's coming, I don't mean every single person who's ever lived. I mean all within a context, okay? So here, that word all, the context is between Jew and Gentile. It's not every person, it's all, peop- all types of people, Jew and Gentile. So to say it another way, it's not all people without exception, it's all people without distinction. Let me say that again. It's not all people without exception, it's all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile. Now here's where I want to end. This is a weird text. It talks about Israel, it quotes from the Old Testament, what's all this Jew-Gentile stuff? Let me give you your take home from this passage here, okay? God likes saving people by grace and by grace alone. Everyone has been shut up under sin because God doesn't want us having some of the glory. If 1% of your salvation is up to you, for all eternity you can worship God 99% and worship yourself 1%. So what God has done to magnify his glory, which is the thing he cares about the most, because he should, because it's the thing that is most morally worthy, he has shut up all under sin that everyone who gets saved only does so by grace, only does so by trusting Christ, only does so by mercy. You don't get to play a part in that. God regenerates. God justifies. God is the one who's doing the stuff. I'll give you a little story. So we have a a member of our congregation, a guy named Paul Mathis, who's a friend. Raise your hand, Paul. Paul would never do that because he's very, uh, very humble. And so I'm going to make his face turn red by making him raise his hand. Paul's been a pastor at at some other churches, he's been a missionary overseas, and he told me a story I thought was really interesting. He was actually one time in Africa, uh, doing missions work there, and he was in uh, Kenya, specifically, and he was having a conversation with the locals that he was ministering to about God's grace. And here's what they were talking about. Is it monkey grace, or is it lion grace? What does that mean, Zach? That sounds weird, let me explain. Have you ever seen, like on the Discovery Channel, a little baby monkey on the back of its mama? You ever seen that? Okay, the mama monkey does most of the work. She's the one running through the trees and peeling bananas and these kind of things, but the little monkey, its job is to hang on to the back, okay? So the mama's doing most of the work, but the monkey's doing a little bit of the work, Contrast that with how a lion picks up its cub. When it picks up its cub, it picks the cub up by the back of the neck, by the scruff, and that little cub doesn't do anything. It just kind of hangs there. It's not contributing. It's not hanging on, okay? What the Bible will say to you is that God has lion grace, not monkey grace. I think many of you are probably monkey grace people. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God will save me. But I better do my 10%. You do 0%. Your job was all the getting lost. You did a great job at that. It's God's job. God's job alone to lift you up. As the lion of Judah takes you by the back of the neck and lifts you up, and all you do is hang there. That's the idea of this text, that in saving sinners, God gives radical Radical grace. We have a tendency to think that legalistic sins are somehow safer than licentious sins. Let me, let me back up. Imagine that you have a spectrum, okay? Over here, you have what's called licentiousness. You hear the word license in that. All that means is you live like the devil. If there is a rule given to you, you will break it. Don't tell me what to do. I'm a rebel. I will do what I want. That's licentiousness. On the other end of the spectrum, you have legalism. Legalism is not where you try to walk in righteousness. You're supposed to do that. It's where you try to earn God's favor by your actions. It's where you try to make God love you more or less based upon your actions. When someone gives you a rule, you will keep it. Everyone is born with a proclivity towards one of these two extremes. You know this if you have kids, because some of your kids, though they're very similar genetically, will err more on this side, and your other kids will err more on this side, okay? What the Bible is going to say is that both groups need grace. For the person that's running off into sin, they need the mercy of Christ like the prostitute that cries at Jesus' feet. But listen, the people over here wrestling with legalism need that grace just as much, if not more. I think what we do is we think legalistic sins are safer. Yeah, I know I shouldn't be out there with prostitutes and drugs and all that kind of stuff, that's obvious, but I'll just go to church for 30 years and try to earn my salvation. There's something especially demonic about legalism because it parades around as an angel of light. It acts like it's safe. It acts like it's okay. And the Bible has to condemn it over and over and over again. You are saved by Christ and Christ alone, period, full stop, exclamation point, done. Whether you are more legalistic or you are more licentious, Christ is your solution. God has shut up all under sin so that nobody gets in except by mercy, so that nobody gets in except by mercy. The Gentiles say, yay, we get into the faith. We didn't originally get this. And the Jews who rejected Christ then have to come back and accept Christ and say, We need mercy too, because we've rejected the Messiah, that God might have mercy on all. That's God's purpose. That's how God gets glory. So with that in mind, I want to invite the volunteers who are helping serve communion to come pass out the elements as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. I confess that it's a a strange text for us. Most of us are not wrestling through eschatological issues on the end times, and most of us are not wrestling through Jew and Gentile relations, yet even in this text, we see your love for us. We see that you have provided mercy for sinners who have broken your rules over and over again. And though we continue to break them, though we continue to struggle with sin and fall into to temptation and all kinds of things, you continue to show us grace. We confess that you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to save us. You didn't have to give us mercy. You just did because you decided to set your love on us. You're like one who goes to an orphanage and just adopts the sickest kids, the worst kids, the most rebellious kids, and you adopt us into your family. And we confess that we don't deserve that. But you do deserve praise. That you always get your glory. You win no matter what. You are, you are always in a win-win situation. Either someone rejects you and you punish them for your justice and your might. Or they receive Christ and you give them mercy. But either way you get glory. We thank you that you are a winning God. You are a God who succeeds in his purposes. Which is to give glory to himself. We love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.